0: today. We're going to look at his first sermon. There's a number of messages here from Zechariah, a number of visions that he had, and what I plan to do in two weeks in that lesson is we're going to just skim through the book of Zechariah, looking at the visions, um, and as well as some of his prophecies about end-time events, and some of the prophecies that he gives us of the Messiah. And that's, to me, the most exciting part of Zechariah, is looking at his prophecies about the coming Messiah. And so, we're going to look at the broad spectrum of issues that Zechariah deals with. But, let's jump right in. Let's read verse 1, the introductory verse. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu, the prophet, saying, So let's stop right there for a second. Let's uh, break down this first verse. First of all, he gives us the dating here, the timing here. Um, We know, as we mentioned in the last Sunday school lesson I taught, this is the time period of Haggai. He and Haggai are preaching at the same time. It is the time of the rebuilding of the temple after the Babylonian captivity. So let's talk about this context for a second. Ezra chapters 1 through 4 play the background. For the book, um, Ezra 5 aligns with the writing of this book, and if this screen looks familiar to you, I took those exact points off of the Haggai lesson because the context is exactly the same for these two prophets. Let's talk about the dating of it. Um, The first sermon here took place in the year 520 BC. He says here it was the second Year of Darius. My wife said last night that Zechariah did not journal as well as Haggai did, because he doesn't tell us on what day he preached the sermon. But Haggai, if you remember, um, he he not only told the year in which he preached each of his sermons, he told us the day. And so you can go back in history and find the day. And if y'all remember, one of his sermons was preached on December 24th in the year 520. So anyway, you can trace them back and find the exact day of Haggai's. So let's compare the two. And we're only going to look at Zechariah's first message today. We'll see how he fits in with Haggai in his later, <coughs> the next part of his book. But first of all, Haggai's first sermon was preached on the first day of the sixth month. Second sermon on the 24th day of the sixth month. His third sermon on the 21st day of the seventh month. And then Zechariah preached a sermon. So it's like a Bible conference going on in Jerusalem. Zechariah's first sermon was in the eighth month. As I said earlier, we don't know what day. Um, Haggai's fourth sermon was on the 24th day of the ninth month. So these are two preachers who are working um, very well together, very complementary sermons, and if you compare the two, or complementary pastors, if you compare the two we looked at before, Haggai's message is primarily—go back to that picture—Haggai, his focus is on its time to build. They were discouraged. Um, there, was a, there was opposition to the building of the temple, as we read in Ezra. And so what was his sermon? His sermon was, it is time to build. Don't be discouraged. Don't stop. Get up. Go to the mountains. Get the wood. Bring it down. Build. Let's build the house of God. Then he deals with the spiritual issues of the nation. He even gives prophetic information about the coming Messiah, not just his first coming, but he gives information about the second coming. He gives information about the millennial reign of Christ. Um, but his primary message is very practical. Get up, build. So he's calling for literal activity in the day in which he's preaching. Get up and do something. We get to Zechariah, and he is more concerned with dealing with the spiritual aspect that goes along with this. So Haggai is saying, Get up and build. And Zechariah says, Make sure your heart's right with God. So they're working together. One to say, let's get active. The other one say, let's make sure our hearts are right. And like I said, Haggai talked about their hearts needing to be right. But Zechariah, his preaching is going to focus heavily on this. He's even going to take us into the coming of the Messiah. As I've already said, he deals with um, teaching about the branch, which was the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He gives us Great information about him. He talks about the time in which Israel would finally turn to God. And we'll look at some of those things in the next Sunday School lesson. But if you can remember it this way, Haggai is being very practical. Bill, buy the wood. I mean, he's literally giving them instructions. Go up to the mountains, get the wood, build the house. Zechariah is focusing, get your heart right with God. And I like the way one Bible commentator said it. He said, Haggai gave them information about the temple in their present day. Build the temple. Zechariah says, here's why it's important to build the temple. And here's another time in the future where the temple is going to be rebuilt. And so he gives a lot of information about latter times, um, a temple that is yet to be built today. Just last week, the Palestinians... Um, had complete run of the Temple Mount, and the Jews were not even allowed on Temple Mount last week, I believe it was. Um, of course, the Jews were getting blamed for what was happening, even though they had pictures of inside the mosque, and um, the Palestinians had rocks piled up to throw at the Jews. I mean, it was obvious they were not there for peace. There was something else they were there for. That kind of turbulence, and Zachariah deals with some of that, is going away one day. And um, he gets very blunt, very bold, and some people would get up and walk out if they heard a Pastor Hovey today say from the pulpit what Zechariah said about the people who dwell in the land of Israel today that are not Jews and are Christ rejectors. If Pastor Hovey said it, some people would get up and walk out. But Zachariah said it inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he said, this is what those people are called. And he said, they're going. They're going to be gone one day. God is going to deal with them. Um, So that is a scary thing for our world, for Christ rejectors, is to realize that God is going to deal very harshly. So that's a little bit of comparison between Haggai and Zechariah. Zechariah is a deep book. As I said, a number of visions that he saw. He gives good explanations, though, and we'll talk about those in our next lesson. Here we are to the end, almost the end of the timeline of the prophets. Right over here, we've got Zechariah, 520, same year as Haggai. Of course, he preached longer than that. Some say the latter part of his book was much later in his life. I don't know. Um, Some say it followed closely thereafter. Um, I can't really say. Others that I do know are utterly ridiculous are the people that say two different people wrote the book. The first half was written by Zachariah, the second half by somebody else, and then it was stuck on because it's a little different. But when you look at the overall theme of the book, they match. And so um, I don't know. I've read books before that had different chapters about different things. So I, And I never assumed that two different people wrote the book, you know. Um, Elizabeth Elliot read her book for men Really, really great book. I highly recommend it. She wrote the whole book to one of her nephews. And um, really great book. But, um, I mean, I didn't assume when chapter 2 was so different than chapter 1, I did not assume a different Elizabeth Elliot wrote the book. You know, it seemed like the same author. Um, Anyway, I think if we looked at the Bible that simply, we would laugh at the so-called scholars who try to rip up the Bible. Anyway, so very different writing styles, perhaps, but nonetheless, a very um, coherent message throughout the book. So, Zechariah, second to last of the prophets, and we put him second because, first of all, he's second in the Scriptures, but it is believed that he was the younger of the two, and we'll talk about here why he was probably the younger of the two prophets. First of all, let's look at his person here. Um, He says his name is Zechariah. Zechariah means Jehovah remembers or Jehovah remembered, which is really amazing when we look at his first sermon. As you look at all of his sermons, even when you get to the time of the millennial reign of Christ, when Jesus is going to come back and rule and reign from Jerusalem and they're going to build the temple and it's going to be an awesome thing. If you look even just at Zechariah's name and you think about that, you're going to go, you know what? God still remembers. Down the road, we're going to be able to look back and go, God remembered. And so here they are. They've been in the Babylonian captivity. They come back. They have two great prophets preaching to them, Haggai and God remembered. So when they say his name in the Jewish culture, they say his name. Oh, now Brother, Brother Zachariah is getting up. They might as well have been saying, Brother God remembers is getting up to preach now. So right away, just by his name, we know, boy, this message is going to be good because his, message is, his name is connected to his message and to who he is. He is listed here. He says he is the son of Barakiah, the grandson of Edu. This is a really significant name here, the grandson of Edu. This tells us one thing is that he is a priest. So Zechariah is one of the priest prophets. Um, his grandfather came back from Babylon with um, uh, Zerubbabel. So when Zerubbabel brought a group, uh, group of Jews back to the Holy Land to reestablish the land, his grandfather came with them, which is why a lot of people say he was probably pretty young because if his grandfather made the journey back and then somewhere along the line Zacharias born, you've probably got a young prophet here preaching with the older prophet Haggai. So, let's look at his first sermon. Let's break this down a little bit. First of all, let's read his first sermon, beginning in verse number 2, which gives us the background of the sermon. This is what God said. The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore, say thou unto them. So, here begins the sermon. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I command my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doing, so hath he dealt with us. And so here we have very short form this first sermon of Zechariah. The number one, the first point I want to bring out here is what we see in verse number two. We see the purpose for this sermon. You know, sometimes we, we, we preach or we bring a message, a uh, Sunday school lesson. Sometimes God just prompts our hearts to say something to someone else, and we don't always understand why we're saying what we're saying. This was not the case with Zachariah. He knew exactly why he's supposed to preach the sermon. Um, there have been times where God has laid on my heart some heavy messages, and I didn't know why I was preaching, I think to me the scariest sermons are when I do know why. Because God just convicts my heart, this is a sin issue, it needs to be dealt with, you need to preach this. And that's very uncomfortable when you know exactly what you're preaching about. Um, I prefer it much more when God tells me, preach this. And I go, that does not make any sense, God. And I've literally had those conversations. I've probably told this story before, but one time I was sitting on the front row in Ghana, West Africa. They were taking us to all these churches that our missions board, we had a small missions board (coughs) at my dad's church. We had uh, four or five missionaries that um, the church had organized a board because two of the missionaries that we highly supported, one of them was members of our church, Um, were kicked off of, out of this other board's mission. They didn't like the way the conservative pastors did, and so they figured out a way to get rid of them anyway. So at that point, they're like, well, these missionaries want to go back. They're good men. And so the church organized a missions board and started sending missionaries. So I was in Ghana, West Africa, and they were taking us to each of the churches that had recently been built. Um, and sponsored by the missions board. So they had taken us to um, this one of the churches way out. We would driven a few hours to get to the church. We go in. The chief had donated the land that the church was built on. And so we get to the service. They they'd take us into the building. They seat us at the front, and we sing. And then I was supposed to preach. Well, at each one of these villages, when we'd get to the church, we'd walk around, we'd visit with people, and then... Um, That we would sing, and then I would get up and preach a gospel message. But we get to this one village, and I'm sitting there, and the Holy Spirit says to get up and read um, the passage in Matthew Suffer the little children um, to come into me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. I thought, there are no children here. We're talking about their new building. I need to be preaching the gospel, just give them the plan of salvation. Holy Spirit said, no, you get up and quote that scripture and you say these words. And I had specific words to say. This is weird. I am in Africa. If I was in America and the Holy Spirit said to not worry about the children writing on the walls, I would get that. I mean, some churches are scared of having bus ministries because the kids might get the carpet dirty. Literally, I've heard that line. They might get the carpet dirty and they might write on the walls. And so that would make sense, but I'm in a mud hut with a little cement floor that is dirty already, and it's a brand new building with plastic chairs. God, this is not, I'm not hearing from you. This cannot be you telling me to get up and tell these people this. I felt, I really felt kind of foolish, which, you know, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. Anyway, it was foolishness to me at that moment to get up and say that. And so I'm sitting there arguing with the Holy Spirit, and finally I'm like, I cannot live with this if I don't get up and say this. I know God is telling me to say this. Well, the chief gets up, and he speaks. Very old, feeble man. He wanted to marry one of the girls in our group, actually. Tried to convince her to stay and be one of his wives. Um, That was fun, trying to get Eden Brownfield away from him. Anyway, she's like, Aaron, please, please rescue me. I think he's serious. By this time, he's like petting her hair. You know, like, I think, oh, y'all, you want to stay. You will be my wife. And he already had a couple. Anyway, um, the chief gets up, and he speaks at the beginning because he donated the property, right? Well, he gets up, and he's talking. I mean, he's letting them have it, and he sits down. And they said, okay, now it's your turn. Now, let me say, he was speaking in tweet. I could not understand a word he said. Then I get up with the translator, and I begin to, quote, suffer little children to come unto me and forbid them not. I said, God has given you this beautiful little building. I didn't call it little. It was tiny. But God has given you this beautiful building. It was about the size of this section of chairs right here. God has given you this beautiful building to use for his glory and for his honor. And you need to... Bring the children in and teach them the Bible. I mean, it's a tiny little village. I mean, you could have a bus ministry and it'd take you five minutes to walk the town and bring all the kids. I mean, tiny place, lots of kids. And so I said, You bring the kids in. I said, Don't be afraid of the kids getting the building dirty. Don't be afraid of them tracking in the dirt. Don't be afraid of them messing up these walls. Bring the children in and give them the gospel. Let's pray. I thought, this is the weirdest sermon I have ever preached. And I sat down on the front row, and the missionary, Brother Buddy Bear, the um, Vogners know him. Um, I sat down beside him, and he said, whoa. I said, what? You just stood there and contradicted the chief. I said, I did What? oh, no. He said, oh, it's okay. I mean, you don't contradict the chief. There's the chief and there's the queen mother. You don't, con- you don't contradict either one of them. You're going to be kicked out of town. The whole church kicked out of town. You know, don't even come tear the building down. And I, th- I said, oh, no. He said, no, it's okay. He needed that. I said, what did he say? He said, well, when he was talking before you, he, he got up. He said, now, don't you let any children come in this building. Don't you let them get, come in here and get the floors dirty. Don't you let them come in here and mess up the walls. I sat there, just chills. That message was from the Holy Ghost. I didn't know why I was preaching it. It was so short, it was so tiny, seemed to me insignificant. It was powerful that day because the chief gets up and says, Do not let them come into this building. Don't let them mess up the floors. Don't let them mess up the walls. The Holy Spirit tells me in a different language. Bring the children in, don't worry about the floors, don't worry about the walls. That is when the Holy Spirit is working and sometimes gives us a message, a word to get to share with someone else from God's word that we don't understand why we're sharing it. But Zechariah gets the specific reason here. He says, This is why you're to bring this message. Look at verse two: the Lord hath been sore, displeased with your fathers. He says, Zechariah, these are the words I'm gonna give you, and this is the reason. Your fathers, God has been sore displeased, meaning God, in plain English today, God is very, has been very angry with your fathers. God has been extremely angry with your fathers. They had had the prophets come before them. That's why I found this painting uh, by a Jewish artist of one of the prophets. It's a dark picture. But when you read some of the minor prophets, that, pic, that painting really paints the message of some of these prophets. God is angry with you. You are in trouble. Yeah, the prophets may be getting up, and the prophets may be saying, oh, pfft, the country's gonna be saved, no problems. I heard someone say that this week. There had been um, a prophet had declared that America was going to be saved, that God, you know, everything was gonna be okay, you know, in America. The more I've studied the scripture, the more I I see I'm not so sure of that. And so I, I heard the man, and the first thing that crossed my mind, the Holy Spirit said, this man is quoting a false prophet. I have no clue who the prophet was. But when I heard his prophecy, knowing the scriptures, I went, this cannot be true. Then he wanted us to all declare it, and I could not declare with him his prophecy. And then he got through praying, and I could not say amen. I could not agree with what the man was saying. Why? Because... As I'm sitting there, I'm I'm reasoning through this during his talk and during his prayer, and I am reasoning through in my mind, okay, Lord, could he be right? Could this be truth? God is going to bring a revival here. He's going to save America. And then I started remembering some of these minor prophets that said, okay, now there are prophets which are not really prophets, and they're telling you God is really not going to judge us. God's going to save Israel. But the prophet said, no, he's not prepare to meet thy God. And so as I'm sitting and I'm listening to this man declare this, I get to the end of his prayer and I realize I cannot agree with this prayer because it may not be true. I beg God for mercy. I beg God for revival, but it may not be true. Why? Because the prophet could be speaking to America today. God has been highly displeased with your fathers. And we, when we realize that, it should cause us to tremble in our boots. God hath been sore, displeased. And so this is the background. He said, this is why you have to preach this, because God has been angry with your fathers. So God's displeasure was the purpose, the reason for the sermon. Then he goes into a call to repentance. And I put a picture up here, both of um, Haggai and of uh, a artist's rendition of Zechariah because I want us to think in the context of what's happening. God gave messages throughout the scriptures in the context of what was happening at the time. And what is happening at the time is the rebuilding of the temple. So think about that as we look at the sermon. Look at verse number three, the beginning of the sermon. Therefore shalt thou say unto them. Okay, here's the first words of the sermon. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, turn ye unto me saith the Lord of hosts. It is a call to turn to the Lord. It is a call to repentance. Why? Because God was angry with the nation. So he tells God's people, you need to turn to me. And it's true for us today that there needs to be a repentance in God's house. There needs to be a repentance in the church, a turning to God, a turning to God's word, There needs to be a repentance, but I think we can see as well that there needs to be a turning um, for the lost. When every one of us got saved, there was a turning that took place. Now, before anybody jumps on the whole repentance salvation thing, there are two aspects to that. There is the extreme that says in order to be saved, you have to repent of every sin you've ever committed. And when you have done that, when you have worked your way to God, you can get saved. But then there is that you have to turn to Jesus Christ and him and him alone, and you can be saved. What's the difference in the two? It's the, ah, yeah, it's the focus. What are you looking at? Are we focused on all that we're turning from? Or are we focused on what we're turning to? When we're fully focused on turning to Jesus Christ, there are so many sins in our lives that the Holy Spirit doesn't even deal with when we get saved. At salvation, the Holy Spirit convicts us. For me, it was just the general fact that I was a sinner. God didn't start confessing or showing me specific sins in my life at that moment. I just realized I was a sinner and I needed Jesus Christ. Well, once I got saved, what did God start doing? He started saying, Oh, you have so much trouble obeying your parents. My mom tells that when I was six years old, when I got saved, she said she saw such a change in my life. I don't remember the change. But I I do remember stuff from a little kid like the Holy Spirit convicting me like crazy when I would disobey my parents. I mean, I, I couldn't sleep for nights till I confessed and apologized for. I mean, even just smart-mouthing my mama, I mean, I just couldn't live with it. Why? The Holy Spirit just burned in my heart to deal with that sin. So when a person gets saved, God deals with our sin issue. And then as we begin to grow in Christ, he starts dealing with specific sins. Oh, you need to deal with this, you need to deal with that. And I mean, we even see in the life of Christ, as he was um, teaching that he would he would sometimes, in dealing with a person's salvation, deal with specific sin. What did he tell a rich young ruler? Go sell all that you have and then follow me. Was that work salvation? No. He was telling him, turn to me. Until you get rid of your riches, you're not going to turn to me. I heard Billy Graham do that with Stuart Hamlin, the, the hymn writer. Um, Stuart Hamlin called him late one night when he was preaching in Hollywood and said, um, I want to get saved. And Billy Graham told him, I'm not going to waste my time coming to your hotel room. I thought, wow, what an evangelist. I'm going to waste my thumb coming to your hotel Wow. But I, I didn't know Stuart Hamlin. Billy Graham did. So he said, no, I'm not coming. Oh, but, 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 anyway, he finally talks him into coming to his hotel room. And I don't remember how he convinced him to do that. Billy Graham gets to his hotel room. And he said, I, I want to get saved. Let's get on our knees. Billy Graham said, nope, I'm not wasting my time getting on the floor with you unless you're willing to sell all your racehorses. Because Billy Graham had figured out who Stuart Hamlin's God was. His God was his racehorses. And Billy Graham realized until you let go of them, you'll never grab hold of God. And Stuart Hamlin looked at him in desperation and said, I'll get rid of the horses. He said, let's get on our knees. Why? <clears throat> because in all those, all those weeks he had been witnessing to him and praying for him and watching God working in Stuart Hamlin's life, he realized it was a God he was holding on to. He needed to turn to Christ completely. And in his heart, there was another God sitting on the throne. So this turning to Christ needed to happen. Zechariah is calling for the nation. They're rebuilding the temple. And as begin- the walls are beginning to come up, he says, turn to God. He realizes why the Babylonian captivity has taken place. Why the death? Why the suffering? Why the exile? Why the homesickness? Why did they have to deal with all these things for the last 70 years? Because God was sore displeased. So he says, turn To God. There needs to be a repentance. If you think about it in our lives, what did Jesus say in John chapter three? He said he didn't come into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because we were condemned already. I do not have to go to anybody and condemn them and say, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. Now I present truth to them. My point is I'm not the one that turns them into a sinner. They're already that way. I'm not the one that's going to send them to hell. They're already in that condition. You and I, because of our sin, unredeemed, unsaved, we are on our way to hell. But the moment we turn to Jesus Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation to them which be in Christ Jesus. What a powerful thing. So first he tells them they need to turn. There needs to be repentance. The nation needs to turn their heart to God. And then he gives a promise, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. What a beautiful promise. There's the part, there is now therefore no condemnation to them which be in Christ Jesus. He said, if you turn to me, I'll turn to you. Now, does that mean God's going in a different direction from the nation? Well, in some ways, yes, but God has been pursuing Israel the whole time. That's why he sent them to Babylon, because he wanted them to come home. Because there had not been heart repentance, he had been pursuing them from the first prophet onward. The first prophet was sent with a hard message because he wanted his people to repent. He wanted the heart of his people. Why was the prophet sent to Nineveh? God destroyed Nineveh. I, I, oh, was it? I'm trying to remember which prophet it was. Nahum. God had destroyed them and other nations around them in hopes that the nation of Israel would see God destroy them and say, we're going to turn to God lest he do the same thing to us. That was God's hopes. But yet, it didn't happen. So he's calling for our repentance and he said, you turn to me and I will turn to you. What's amazing is if you study history, if you study Bible prophecy, you find that what happened after this, Zechariah preaches, Haggai preaches, they rebuild the temple, but there is no great national revival, no massive turning. There are points, pockets of revival, but there's no heart, major national turning to God, anything that was lasting anyway, because then after we get past Zechariah, we got another prophet, Malachi, and then Malachi has to come and preach. How does Malachi end? He said, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers unto the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And there ends the Old Testament with the word curse. What follows Malachi? We're going to be studying that here in in a few weeks. Actually, next month, the plan is that we're going to look one morning in Sunday school at those 400 silent years between the Old and New Testament. It sets the ground for the four Gospels. In those 400 silent years, why did that come? Because they didn't turn to God. Malachi preached to them, they didn't do it. So they have these 400 silent years where God sends them no prophet. Then the Messiah comes, Matthew chapter one. The Messiah shows up on the scene. The New Testament begins with the Messiah. But what did they do when they got to the end of his life? They crucified him. They rejected Christ. And then as you read the writings of Paul, he said, God has, basically God has put Israel on the shelf and he's picked up somebody else. And he does say there's a promise, you're coming back one day, but for today you're up here. It's not that a a Jew cannot be saved, but as a nation, God was not going to be working through them in the same way for a time. We call this the church age. But then as you can continue studying Bible prophecy, we see that the day will come where Israel will behold Jesus. And they will mourn for him as a man mourns for his firstborn son. And they will realize we crucified him. He is our Messiah. And they will weep, they will wail, and they will receive him as Messiah. And when that day of turning comes, there will be a great revival in Israel. And God will rejoice over his people. And finally, this verse will be fulfilled, that God will turn to his people. But see, there had to be a turning for the nation. And for the individual, if I can go back to the analogy for salvation, there has to be a turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, a turning to him. And when we turn to him, what happens? He's been pursuing us the whole time, but what's he talking about here? He's talking about his wrath. You're not going to have my wrath anymore. You are not the children of wrath. But there is now a fellowship, a drawing together. Glenn? That is, this is where that principle comes from. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. And so he's calling for repentance in the nation. What a beautiful promise. If they would listen and if they would turn, God would turn to them. It would be blessing instead of curse, but that's why Malachi ends with the word curse because the the command here was not heeded. Then let's look at what I've just titled here as lessons learned. Look at verse number four. Be ye not as your fathers unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, What did the old-time prophets say before? Before the Babylonian captivity, this was their message. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. The nation was so wicked, so evil. They didn't just say turn to God. They said, look at your sin. You are evil. You've got to turn to God. I mean, how do we do it when we go out doing Bible clubs and stuff? Why do we start? I mean, we start about heaven to present God. And then we go to the dark page of the wordless book. Why? To present sin. We need to understand that we're sinners. I don't have to condemn someone's heart. The Holy Spirit convicts them, and their own spirit condemns them because they're sinners. But they they need the word of God. They need the truth, the commandments of God, the law of God shows us that we're a sinner. He said the old-time prophets, they dealt with specific sins. They told you about your evil ways. Your evil doings. What did they say? Turn to the Lord. A couple of those pre-Babylonian captivity prophets, Isaiah, Isaiah thirty-one six, he said, "Turn ye unto Him from whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted." Um, Isaiah fifty-five six, seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call ye upon Him while. He is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him t- return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Um, Jeremiah chapter 3, he gives them messages to turn to the Lord. In verse 14 he says, Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord. Jeremiah 4.1 if thou wilt return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me. Jeremiah chapter 25, Jeremiah chapter 35, Lamentations 3, Ezekiel 33, 11, Hosea 6, 1, Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. Hosea 14.1, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Joel chapter 2 and verse 12, therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. Zechariah says, the old prophets have been were telling your fathers they needed to turn to God. They needed to turn from their wickedness. But look at the End of verse 4, but they did not hear, nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. He said, they preached, but your, your fathers didn't listen. Verse 5, your fathers, where are they? All they had to do was think for a moment, they're dead. They're buried in Babylon. Why? He said, and the prophets, do they live Forever? Other their messages might have been written down. We might have them, but the prophets themselves are dead. They've been dead for a long time. Now he gives a contrast. Your fathers are dead. The prophets are dead. Verse 6, but my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? What does that mean to take hold? Seth, could you come up here real quick? This idea of taking hold. I want you to just slowly start walking that way. So the word of God began to try to catch up with them. They kept sending, the prophets kept saying, wait, 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 come back to God, come back to God. But Israel kept going. And finally, finally, one day, the word of God caught up to Israel and dealt with them. He said, the word of God, the commandments of God that the prophets preached, they have taken hold of your fathers. In other words, what they said Has come true. Thank you, Seth. So that's the that's the concept of this Hebrew word here um, that it had taken hold of them. It finally, we would say it finally caught up to them. Ever used that phrase before? You know, a politician gets in trouble. They find out about all their the the money laundering, the 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 crime, the um, bribes they've been taking. It all finally catches up to them one day and it makes a big news headline nationwide. I had a friend that had gotten into sin that he had apparently, I don't know, I never heard how the, the court case went, uh, whether it was true or not, but it, it was accu- he was accused of, Christian guy accused of selling military arms. I didn't even know that stuff still happened. How could you get machine guns off of a military base? I don't know, but apparently this friend figured out how to do it. One Sunday morning, my dad gets a phone call from somebody who used to go to our church. He's now a pastor. Brother Baker, I've got Fox News on this morning, national news. While well, I've been getting ready for church, getting ready to go to church to preach, and um, it just came across the ticker tape at the bottom that so-and-so has been arrested for arms stealing and whatever. I mean, talking about major federal offenses here. If that's true, that's how your sin finally catches up to you. All of a sudden, it's on the ticker tape of national news. This guy who had been a nobody is no longer a nobody. Why? Because his sin caught up to him. He said, you're, you're, The sin of your fathers finally caught up to them. Uh, it, it took hold of them. He said, And they returned and said, <clears throat> This is their response. Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us, according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. He said, in other words, just what God said is what God has done. So what's the reminder to them? Your fathers sinned, your fathers did not turn, and God dealt with their sin. What is he implying? You're building the temple. Get your hearts right with God. Because if you don't, God will deal with you as he dealt with your fathers. And what do we see later on? A great dispersion of the the Jews around the world. Why? Because God was not not pleased with their fathers. They had sinned against them. And all of it, even today, is God's desire to draw them back, to bring a future national revival in the nation of Israel. Today, they are a um, secular nation. But one day, they will receive the Messiah. Messiah and become a spiritual nation. So we need to be aware of this. God's word doesn't change. Prophets may die. Today we celebrate Mother's Day. Some of you, your mothers are no longer here. They have gone on. And that's a reality of life, that people die and people leave. But what does Zechariah say? But the word of God endures. It is still here, and it is still true. And so if we're going to avoid the consequences that our forefathers have seen, even for our nation, if we're going to learn any lesson from Zechariah for our nation, we have to realize God has not been pleased. So what are we going to do? We have to turn to the Lord in our hearts and in our actions. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you now, and we just ask that you would work in our hearts today, that you would deal with our hearts And Lord, there would be a great turning to you. Lord, as I've studied the minor prophets, I see the only hope for America is if we turn to you. There is no political program that will make any difference. But it must be a repentance, a changing of the heart of our nation. Lord, I realize that that starts with each one of us. So Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts today Make us more like your son. Change us, mold us, shape us into your image. Lord, I thank you for this message of Zechariah. Lord, I know that had to have been a hard message to stand in Jerusalem and preach. Yeah, Lord, I thank you for his faithfulness. and I pray that you would help us to learn from the past, learn from the mistakes of Israel and the mistakes of our own nation. And Lord, that you would help us to turn to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.